Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. As always, if you're listening or watching to this program live on uh, the Fallon Forum Facebook page, normally you could tune in and give us a call. We have a malfunction thanks to Facebook today, but uh, normally you can do that, so stick around. Next week you'll be able to access that feature again. You know, and if you value what we do, we need your support. You can visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business, or if you're with a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor of this program as well. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. And check out Gateway's uh, catering and floral services as well, folks. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so Brad Zahn is going to join us later in the program. We'll start with, uh, with Brad by talking about eminent domain and pipelines, and then, uh, yeah, something we probably mostly agree on. From there, the conversation could go anywhere. But first, I'd like to welcome Tim Takaro to the program. Tim is a professor and physician scientist at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. His current research on human health and climate change focuses on water quality, extreme weather and gastrointestinal illness, and the role of aeroallergens in the development of asthma and allergy in children. Can I get a wow on that? <laughs> and we will talk about that. But first, I got to tell you, what really caught my eye about Tim was his unique form of civil disobedience. Um, Tim basically kept roosting with, he kept roosting birds company for over a year, uh, sitting in a tree to prevent a pipeline from being built through the Brunette River Conservation Area in British Columbia. Uh, Tim, welcome to the program and welcome back to Earth. Hey, thanks, Ed. Yeah. So let's first talk about your treetop civil disobedience. Um, what, where, when, and why? Yeah. So in British Columbia, we have a um, pipeline um, being constructed uh, across the province from the Alberta tar sands to the coast. Um, and this project uh, is designed to triple the capacity of an existing pipeline. Uh, which carries uh, diluted bitumen. Um, diluted bitumen is bitumen, uh, which is a tar-like substance, right. uh, very carcinogenic, uh, with um, a condensate, essentially a light uh, carbon, like gasoline, to make it uh, flow through the pipe. So right. it's a very toxic substance, uh, highly flammable, um, going through uh, a 24-inch pipe uh, through streams and uh, greenways and waterways, uh, and so the problem with this project is that there is a climate emergency, and we have been instructed by thousands of scientists, along with the United Nations, to stop building new fossil energy infrastructure. Right, but the Canadian government so, has been supporting the the extension of the uh, pipeline through to the Pacific Ocean. Not only are they supporting it, the Texas oil company that was building it, um, Kinder Morgan, abandoned the project because they recognized that uh, it was a project that was fraught with political and social and environmental problems in British Columbia. So they abandoned the project and the government bought it. So Kinder Morgan has a social conscience? I wouldn't go that far, um, but uh, they recognized that there were too many financial risks, political risks, okay. and um, risks with indigenous people's sovereignty. So, so, so they backed away, but the Canadian government, a hero of the day, stepped in to make sure the oil industry's um, uh, profits were, uh, were assured. That is correct. Okay. Until just a few... Um, but just last month, really, uh, when the price increased again, they, it reached the government's tolerance. So they said, 
we won't give you any more money. You have to go find that extra $10 million billion on your own. Uh, so they have begun to recognize that um, this is a black hole uh, for money and a bad idea, but um, they have not yet said uh, we're going to stop the project. So how, how do you just just so, how, how do they get a pipeline through the uh, through the Rocky Mountains? I've often wondered about well, that. So this, this was a very interesting trick they did um, a decade ago or a little more. They, um, they said that the section that you're referring to through the Rocky Mountains, uh, th that the pipe couldn't be trusted. And so we need to put in the new pipe because the old pipe can't be trusted. So they did that. They put in the new pipe through the Rockies up to um, near Mount Robeson, actually. And then after they had finished, they said, well, maybe that old pipe is not so bad. Uh, and they declared it okay to use. Okay. So I thought that was a right. really uh, amazing sleight of hand um, to get them to be able to construct the most difficult section already. But they still have mount, mountainous British Columbia and right. the Fraser River and multiple other large rivers uh, right. to cross and a lot of green space and trees to be cut. And there have been, there's been a lot of resistance to this pipeline from indigenous communities and, and others as well. And uh, you've been involved with a group that have protested by building, well, basically by inhabiting treetops. I mean – Way up there, if I understand correctly, you were. Yeah. And, and you, you, you spent... Yeah, we built uh, four, um, four different tree sits, um, and um, it's uh, it's been successful uh, insofar as we've been able to slow the project and and have contributed, um, although they don't admit this, um, contributed to the predicament that they're in now. Um, we had a miraculous. Uh, four-month uh, stoppage because we found a hummingbird nest and they um, they needed uh, to uh, leave the nest alone for four months. Um, they were busted by Environment Climate Change Canada. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the sits um, have been very good for adding uh, publicity to the environmental consequences of the project, um, both climate change and um, animal and human health. And, and how much time did you spend uh, in the tree yourself? Um, I haven't actually added all it, it all up, but it um, in the order of four months. Okay, and did um, we were sixteen months in total uh, in the trees, but we have team. And these are trees. Um, these are trees that are directly in the path of where they wanted to build the pipeline. That's correct. So yeah. they, they, they couldn't just cut the tree down and have you crash to the ground with it. Did they do anything no, to try to get... No, upon. They, they, okay. Did they do anything to try to get you out of the tree? Well, eventually they extracted us. Um, How do they so do that? Helicopter? They um, No, they bring in... They build a road. They're, you know, going to be clearing to build this road anyway. So they eventually... Um, build the road right up to the treehouse. They have this uh, cherry picker that's on a tractor. Um, and then you just drive it right up there, put some um, uh, militarized uh, police who are highly trained in um, extractions. Like Canadian, and, Canadian Mounties. And they put them up there and they say, are you going to come down? You're under arrest. What if you say, no, I'm going to stay here? Well, then they remove you. Okay. And they can't... So we've had, we've had some people lock themselves down, and, you know, it adds another hour to the effort. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they have guns, uh, they have armor, and they have the cherry picker. Um, there's not much you can do. Mm. How high up in the tree were you? Uh, there were four different ones at different heights, but they're all um, they're all above uh, fifteen meters. 
So in um, American talk, that would be 45 feet. Yeah, 50, 45, 50 That's feet. That's pretty yeah. high. Yeah, okay. <laughs> wow, okay. So um, what happens when you are arrested for blocking a pipeline by sitting in a tree? Uh, jail time, prison time? What do you do? Yes, I expect to go to jail. Um, My uh, trial is uh, June 13th. Um, Many people have gone to jail already. What what we're accused of um, violating is a so-called injunction, and this is a process by which the company says uh, we need um, you to keep people away from our construction area, so we want you to um, make it illegal to enter the construction area. In this case, it was previously a conservation area. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you're guilty of violating this injunction, which has been used uh, in British Columbia now for about 30 years, um, almost always by industry, uh, to get what they want. And um, it's uh, an absolute violation of the courts that are supposed mm. to be protecting the people. Right. Instead, they're protecting industry. So you might go to jail. And uh, how has this affected your academic work? Yeah, so, so far, um, I was uh, in a very um, luxurious spot um, on sabbatical um, when the COVID uh, pandemic hit, and um, so I was able to um, rejig. I was supposed to go to Barcelona, and if you'll recall, in um, March of 2020, um, that was one of the hot areas. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no way I was going to be doing what I had planned to do in terms of the research project. So I uh, pivoted, and uh, because I've worked so much in health impacts of climate change. Um, I recognized that this project was in direct contravention of everything I knew to be uh, required for us to address the climate emergency. So I pivoted to um, uh, blocking this project. And your whole research work is focused on how climate change impacts human health. Tell us a little bit yes. about that, Tim. Well, um, this past year, as you probably know, uh, was a disaster um, for human health in British Columbia. Um, at the end of June, we had um, what is euphemistically referred to as a heat dome. Right. Oh, yeah. And during this heat event, it uh, was stagnant very high temperatures, uh, day and night, um, for about six to seven days, which uh, killed 740 people in British Columbia alone. It killed others in Washington and Oregon. Um, Those were the um, primary areas uh, of of death. And uh, then in November... um, we had the largest flood event in um, uh, recent history in British Columbia, um, displacing tens of thousands of people and flooding um, a very populous farming area uh, right outside of Vancouver. Right. Um, and closing um, one of the primary, in, in fact, all of the roads. Um, the east of Vancouver were closed for a period of time, about two weeks, and then um, a primary artery uh, was remained closed called Coquihalla. And ironically, that um, has a pipeline running through it, hmm. uh, which had to be closed also because the um, soil around the pipe was washed away in many places. So um, we had these devastating um mortality events and then um, the flooding and it was you know truly a wake-up call for people that like the climate emergency is here right and um, um, so 
the you know heat effects are what makes the news oftentimes, and that is a very important aspect of the uh, climate future we're looking at people dying in heat waves, but it's not the only thing. Sure, yeah. And um, my work is uh, in extreme weather events. I focus on um, extreme rain events and um, water waterborne illness. Hmm. So, um, Well, that's really important work. The, I'm, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad you're out of the tree. <laughs> I'm glad you're able to continue doing this, although I'd say your witness in stopping the, the – uh, construction was uh, very powerful and very much appreciated by those of us who understand the problems of these types of uh, pipelines. So thank you. Uh, thank you very well, much for you. that, Tim. Uh, we got to run to a short break. Uh, uh, Tim, if people want to get in okay. touch with you, learn more about your research, what can they do? Where do they go? So um, I have a, a website on the SFU. If you go to SFU and search my name, uh, Tim Takaro, T-A-K-A-R-O, um, You'll see Planetary Health Research Group um, and um, and uh, my own individual webpage as well. Right. And um, that's where you get information on that. And we also have a website, stoptmx.ca, which has a lot of information about the tree set. Tim, thank you so much for joining us, uh, folks. We've been talking with Tim Takaro. And uh, when we come back from a short break here, uh, we're going to be joined by State Senator Brad Zahn, uh, back in just a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche is more important than ever. Please support what we do. Go to the Fallon Forum website, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Klipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's architecture by synthesis. 
Brad Zahn is a Republican state legislature, legislator rather, serving in the Iowa legislature. He represents uh, chunks of Des Moines in the western suburbs. He and I go way back. We share a few things in common, including that we both ran for Congress uh, in me in 2008 and him in 2010. We also share concern about the use of eminent domain to build privately owned carbon dioxide pipelines. We've got a lot to talk about today, but Brad, welcome to the program. Well, I'm so good to be with you, Ed. I think the world of you. Aww. I know we didn't always agree, but <laughs> I want the listeners to know that you are a very passionate person. Well, thank you, uh, Brad. For the causes that you represent, I've always respected Well, oh, thank you. And I know that you and I, I think we share some common ground on this issue of eminent domain being used to build pipelines, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Um, I, you mentioned about the carbon dioxide pipeline, dioxide pipeline. Um, I go farther than that. Um, I certainly think that uh, we should respect uh, the investment that the private citizens of the state of Iowa have put forward uh, on their properties, and we should protect those. And I've just got a, a philosophical problem with a for-profit company coming in and uh, taking land from someone or trying to take land through eminent domain powers uh, because of no matter what it is, I don't care what it is, pipeline or not, uh, it goes back to my days when I had my hardware store in Irvindale, and I actually could respect this. Um, they took away the parking in front of my store in Irvindale, and that's actually what got me involved really? uh, in <laughs> politics. I don't know if you even knew that. But, I didn't know that. Uh, had a, you had a small store in an old part of Irvindale, and, and that was for the improvement of the safety of the intersection. I, I, I understand that. I, I get yeah. that. But, you know, at least what I was upset about is they didn't come out and talk to me about uh -huh. it beforehand. Yeah. They just took my took our property. So. Yeah, I, I anyway. remember. I remember your store. I remember stopping in one time, and we had our picture taken together promoting uh, urban revitalization, promoting Main right. Street economics. Yeah. Yep, I remember those days. Yeah. So, um, now the bill that just passed the Iowa Iowa House rather received you know pretty broad support. It was so broad it was just a voice vote. So we don't know how we don't know how individual lawmakers voted, but when you got a voice vote, it's pretty much overwhelmingly in support of something. And that that uh, that um, that bill, or the language that off, was offered by Bobby Kaufman, State Representative Kaufman, uh, says that we won't be the, the the state will not be not be allowed to issue eminent domain to a pipeline company through next March. And the idea is that gives the that forces these companies to try to get land voluntarily from landowners and it prevents them from saying you better you better you better sign with us voluntarily or we're going to use eminent domain they can't say that now but you'd like you you would have liked to have seen that legislation go further well i sure i certainly would i mean uh, it's in the senate right now if it comes up for a vote i'm going to support it because it does delay uh one year um the ability of this of these companies to be able to take that land through eminent domain um, I supported uh, Senator Taylor uh, from Northwest Iowa actually had a bill that was, I think it was run through the Commerce Committee. I'm not on the Commerce Committee. That basically protected landowners' rights uh, for any kind of a pipeline that goes, regard and there was no expiration date. And that's what I support. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that didn't move forward. So I'm hopeful that the bill that came over from the House uh, that will vote on it and will send it down to the governor. Now, we've seen more resistance to these uh, carbon dioxide pipelines than we saw to the Dakota Access Pipeline, which I think surprises some people, and it surprised me because, you know, I mean, I mean, having oil run through your property does nobody any good in Iowa. But the argument uh, for the CO2 pipelines is, well, it'll help assure the ethanol industry, and then, you know, corn farmers will be able to continue being corn farmers. And yet the opposition this time around is much greater. Do you think that's in part because of the experience that people had on the Dakota Access Pipeline? I mean, uh, that landowners that I are... Don't, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt well, land, Landowners that are seeing uh, significantly reduced crop yields four years later. Right. And, and I was just going to mention that because mm. I've talked to a colleague of ours uh, from the Boone area. Uh, back in the days, Senator Jerry Bain, and I asked him, I said, tell me what happened once they came in there and they put the pipeline through as it went through his farm. Obviously, the yields are substantially less because they're, you know, I don't know exactly what to do. I'm not an engineer, but I know what they're doing. It's they're, they're digging this down deep. They're getting down below the topsoil, and I assume when they cover everything up, 
it's not all 100% topsoil. So that's a concern. I would say this right now, um, you know, you know, I'm certainly I put ethanol in my tank. I do not like mandates, by the way. <laughs> I don't like the ethanol bill the way it's written right, right now. Right. But with that said, um, I mean, I think we should have a bigger conversation here with the Ukraine and the Russian crisis that's going on right now. And as you and I both know, and all your listeners know, when they go to the grocery store, uh, prices are so much higher. But most importantly, they're saying that there's going to be a shortage. I philosophically have a problem with taking um, a food product and putting it in our in our gas tank. Um, so I think we need to have that conversation. I'm wondering if it's in, it'd be more effective for us to for those farmers. I understand that it's a different kind of corn that they put down for the ethanol plants, a different variety. But we really need to be having a conversation about growing more food here in the state of Iowa. And uh, so that's another concern that I think we should be talking about. I know the other argument is, hey, listen, we're dependent on the foreign oil and our enemies and that kind of stuff. And that's why we want to do, you know, do ethanol. I support the ethanol industry. I just support businesses that stand on their own two feet rather than uh, some of the all the subsidies that they get. Now, include all the other companies that are out there that are addicted to subsidies. Yeah, well, when it comes to uh, thinking that we should be growing more of our own food, you and I are on the exact same page on that account, Brad. So beyond beyond uh, beyond the issue of um, of, uh, of pipelines and eminent domain, what are some of your other, what have some of your other priorities been this year? Well, I just think that you know we're right now in the middle of the budget. Uh, you know, we're down to two, three weeks, something like that. And my prediction is we'll be done hopefully before Easter or Good Friday. Um, that, really? you know, basically okay. that. And then, of course, uh, you know, the ethanol bills out there, the bottle bills out there. There is some uh, conversations that need to be had in regards to those uh, items. Uh, but we're really trying to whittle things down. It's kind of coming down to. Uh, really coming down. There's some other ed- educational issues that we're going to probably have to deal with as well. Um, but we're really kind of focusing down to the budget. I'm told that the House and the Senate are not that far apart. Uh, so we'll just see what happens. Well, it's easier to be close together when you're from the same party and you've got a chamber. Well, yes. Yeah, chambers that yes. are controlled both by Republicans. Well, I've been there when it's been divided <laughs> or run all by the Democrats or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it is it is easier to get together uh, I remember the years when it was divided, where I, the, the governorship was controlled at the very beginning when Governor Branstad came back, but the Senate was controlled by the Democrats and the House was controlled by the Republicans, and it took forever for us to yeah. come together, uh, drug that thing out till June, if I recall right. So. Right. Uh, hopefully we'll get that thing done and we can get out of there. Well, Brad, you mentioned education, and that's been a big topic this year, both in Iowa and across the U.S. Now, I was looking at a survey from last year. It was a survey of teachers, and it found, this is back in August of 2021, it found that 37% of the teachers surveyed said they were either planning to leave the profession or retire early. Now, that's a lot. It's a big chunk. That's over a third. And, you know, and a lot of that might have had to do with the strain from the uh, pandemic. But, yeah, mm-hmm. just, just last month, in February of this year, you know, another survey of the same you know, group, the same te- teachers, that found that the number had risen from 37% to 55%. That's more than half those who are teaching saying that they were either planning to leave or retire early. And that's got to have a lot less to do with COVID and maybe more to do with with some of the education initiatives that are really getting a lot of attention, banning books, um, you know, governments telling teachers what they can and can't teach. What do you think? Well, first of all, the bill that was written, and I, I could go on and on about this because I'm on the education committee. The bill that was originally uh, written, I think it was the governor's bill on education reform, and it had several components of it, but one was, uh, you know, a parental notification on if you're going to change the subject matter. Uh, in, and I think it was a 90-day notice or something like that. That's just not practical. Uh, that's not something I could support um, because, you know, you're going, to have, you're going to have different events that are going to happen, such as Ukraine war uh, with Russia, where you might want to focus in on talk about that. And as we all know, that teachers should have the flexibility to teach what they think is appropriate at the time. Right. Okay. In regards to the banning of the books, I'm someone that's been very vocal on that. Um, what my concern was, I had a lot of parents come up to me 
is there's there is about a half dozen books that I think is my personal opinion uh, that uh, I think they're object objectable uh, and I you know and it portrays and it's and it's it's being taught not only in the urban areas but it's actually going into the rural areas you know with the relationship of uh, of an adult having sexual relations with a child, a cousin being molested by another cousin on an overnight, or a, a daughter and a father having a sexual relationship together. Wait, my whole thing was this. Just just let me finish okay, up. Okay, yeah, there. yeah, sure. My, my whole thing with this is I think that's objectionable, and I think parents should be able to weigh in on that. I'm not interested, uh, like the media just loves to talk about, about putting teachers in jail or librarians. That's not my interest there. You know, as an employer myself, I'd rather they spend some of that time focusing on the basics of, you know, the reading, writing, uh, math, and science, um, because I'm getting a lot of employees that really don't have the right, you know, the right uh, background and the tools that they need uh, when they come to me. So um, that is what my objection is on that in regards to the books. Uh, and it's just been portrayed by the media in the wrong way. Um, the governor also had part of her proposal was school choice, allowing the kids that are in poverty level, the, at least the parents, to have the ability to decide if they want to go to a different school, regardless if they're public, non-public, uh, or, or homeschool. Uh, and I believe, and I've been fighting for this for many, many years, that you shouldn't be stuck in a school district based on your zip code. Uh, and so that's another initiative that we'll probably be talking about. But doesn't, but, do, but when you start, when you start moving funds from the public education system to private schools, doesn't that basically undercut the viability of those public schools? Doesn't it make it even more difficult for them to provide the kind of education that parents expect? Well, what I've seen nationally, there's, uh, there's about a dozen states uh, that have school choice what I've seen nationally based on student performance scores, which that's just what we're all interested in, is once this happens is that the student performance scores go up and it really forces some of the non or the lesser performing schools to improve themselves. Um, I'm getting a little off on the teacher thing. I want to talk about that as well. Yeah, but um, I'm, I'm a big proponent. I've seen the information um, and, and full disclosure. I sent my kids to both non-public schools and public school. And uh, I just think that people that are in a bad neighborhood, uh, in, like in the Des Moines metropolitan area, oh. that they should have the ability <laughs> to, and there's, it's usually an urban thing, obviously in some of the rural parts of Iowa, there is not such thing as school choice. Bad, bad neighborhood, Brad, that hurts. That might be where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm what are you talking about? We don't have a bad neighborhood. But I have seen lives change just from the example of Dowling. Now, Dowling has what's called an STO that they use. And if you don't have the money, Dowling will figure out a way to get those students in into their school. And it really is, it's an unbelievable thing uh, in regards to allowing those people of lower incomes. And that's exactly what the governor's bill does, is it allows 10,000 students in the state of Iowa, they have certain limited income requirements by their parents, to be able to make that choice, and I'm fully supportive of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could talk more about that too, but I, I want to I want to bring us back to the book issue. Um, okay. Now, uh, are, are are there actually books in the public school system that condone incest? There's. I wouldn't. Well, there. You know, listen. I read one of them. I was disgusted by it, but mm -hmm. I can tell you that there is situations where they're trying to. T there's situations I could text you after I get done. I can't talk about it publicly because it is obscene material uh, to me. It gets very graphic. Uh, there's a new book that was just brought to my attention uh, from the Central Iowa School District on Saturday that's called Push. Uh, I read that, and that is definitely talking about a daughter having a sexual relationship with her father. Hey, wait, but to have but in a favorable way? In a favorable way? In, in a non-favorable way. Okay, so, so, so maybe I've not read that book. So maybe maybe, but, maybe is, is it calling out the problem and saying, hey, if you, if this happens to you, you, you know, don't it's, don't it's stand not, for it. I'm told it's not that way. Full disclosure, I've not read that book. What yeah. I'll do is I will text you some of the things in, in the book itself after we get done with this interview. I just want I want our, I just want our schools to concentrate 
on the basics so these kids could get out and graduate and have the tools they need to be successful. That's the bottom line with me. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I just, I mean, philosophically, to me, the, um, for the, you know, historically, education, K-12 education is a local phenomenon. People elect their school board members, and if they don't like the way the school, the school is being run, they can get new school board members. And I never was a fan of Ted Kennedy's um, No Child Left Behind initiative. I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, state or federal government being overly involved in decisions affecting K-12 education. It seems like this is the state trying to get more involved. Well, listen, all I can tell you is that I'm getting contacted by literally thousands of parents that are upset. And unfortunately, there is some school districts out there. And I agree with what you said about the, the checks and balances with the school, you know, the school boards uh, and the elections. Um, they do not feel like they're being heard. And, they're, and uh, in one particular instance, there's a central uh, Iowa school uh, board that just changed their policy on uh, the public hearing at the very beginning, you know, that you have at every at every every type of public hearing. And they basically said that you cannot speak on anything that's not a part of the agenda, which is wrong. Uh, because there's a citizen forum at every at the beginning of every public entity. Right. And uh, so people are upset. I think you know, I would just say that you look at through some of these, you know, nationally, I can't what the state is where there was a turnover in the governorship, Virginia or something like that, uh, where it was really came down to educational issues. And the other thing to be very fair is we just came from COVID and you identified that with the, with the original question you asked me is that, you know, there is a lot of frustration when they shut down the schools. And of course it put a lot of people, parents in a bad position because they have a full-time job or, um, and so there's some frustration out there and I, I understand that, but there is a lot of frustration. I just had my forum on Saturday and probably 60% of the forum was talking about obscene books. 60% of the time was taken when we've really? got really, uh, which, literally which, dozens of which, issues to, which, to, which, to which be side thinking of, about. Which side, of the, yeah, which side of the issue? Wanting, wanting parents that are upset about these books. Mm-hmm. And there's, I'm not going to name the school district because <laughs> I don't want to pick on anybody. <laughs> but it's one okay. that's in, my, in the district that I represent. Right. And uh, so... Well, I mean, there's a lot of frustration out there right now. Well, let, let me switch gears, Brad, in the little time we have left. Sure. I'm going to throw yeah. a couple surprise questions at you, all right? You ran for Congress. I ran for Congress. If, yep. we, if we were there, we'd be making, well, maybe we'd be making this decision right now, but uh, should the U.S. Senate confirm Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court, yes or no? I don't know. I, I mean, I didn't pay attention to that, Ed. Um, I, I want to, I would, here's what I, how I make my decisions, because we're very involved the governor's appointees uh, on the Senate side. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to look at your resume, and I want to work look at what your work performance is. And I don't know enough about, honestly, it would be not fair for me to say no or yes. Sure, because you've been because busy. Because I did I not it. listen to that. Yeah, I get it. Okay. So, hey. Um, I, I just say this. I would say this. Everybody out in D.C., regardless if you're a Democrat or Republican, are dysfunctional. <laughs> you know, we got a problem with the people that are out there. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad. I think God had a different plan for me and you as well. And I'm glad I'm not out there because well, I couldn't er, er, last because I would bang my head against the wall. And, uh, you know, you either conform or you're you're not going to get anything done out there. So is every one of them dysfunctional? I would say 90% of them are. Okay. Don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and clearly I think most Americans would agree that the system, especially at the federal level, is dysfunctional. That for sure people could agree with. When it comes yep. down to their individual rep or senator, then, yeah, maybe there's differences of opinion. All right, this is um, almost a silly question, Brad, but since it's like the hot topic du jour this week, what's your take on the Chris Rock, Will Smith dust-up? <laughs> I did hear about that. <laughs> you did hear about that. I, Good, I you don't live on a I did watch it. Um, I think it's unfortunate. Mostly unfortunate. There's probably a lot of younger people, and this is probably, a, you know, a, a uh, a social media sensation right now. I don't think it's a, a good display of how you should act as adults. Okay. And here's my opinion. Who cares? Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, we've got problems like climate change, the war in, in Ukraine, uh, and a collapsing democracy to deal with. 
And, and let, me, let me ask you about one of those, Brad. And you know I'm very passionate about the climate crisis because as I've studied this, I've just seen how bad things are getting and how bad they're going to get. What, do you, what is it going to take to make addressing climate change a bipartisan issue? Education. Um, I've seen, I think I was at a meeting once where there was someone uh, claiming that climate change is, change is drastic and these are, these are scientists. Uh, and they both argued their points. And honestly, I didn't know who to believe at the end of it. Um, I, to answer your question directly, there just needs to be more education. Um, there's no doubt that the, the climate is changing. I just don't know how. And one thing I really worry about is the Chinas and the India and, and, and some of those countries that really don't are doing anything. Um, yeah. But certainly want to make sure... We at this at the state senate, we're trying to make sure we keep our topsoil. Obviously, part of the you know what the discussion is 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 the erosion of our topsoil soil that ends up down in, in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I know that there's a lot of programs we're trying to put more money in that. I do think farmers are very responsible. Uh, most of them are, um, and they obviously take a lot of pride in what they do. So. That's a subject that we go on forever and ever. Yeah. Well, and back um, back to a point you made a, you made earlier about food production, you know we have we have the, we have some of the best soil in the world, and and you know I mean every place is going to be hit by climate change. I mean we've had our derechos, our tornadoes in December, other problems, but you know we're not going to be underwater like Florida. Uh, we're not going to burn up like like California. And speaking of California burning up, when the Central Valley of California is no longer able to produce fruits and vegetables, um, maybe that's one niche that Iowa can help step in and accomplish. Um, you know, I, I, I think, and, and I think now, now is the time to start thinking about that. I mean, what can the legislature do to help encourage more food production in preparation for these changes? You know, I'm not on the Agriculture Committee, so I don't know what kind of programs are out there, but I do know that there's programs out there for younger first-time farmers. Um, I think the biggest challenge, uh, Ed, is that uh, the price of ground is just so expensive now. Right. Um, we've never seen the amount of revenue coming in from the ag sector, and I'm talking particularly to farmers. Uh, right now, if you look at what a bushel of corn is or beans is, um, it's at the highest levels ever. Sure. So I know that there is, you know, that there is, I think, first time, I think there's some organic tax credits that are out there. I see more and more when I'm driving in the country, more and more uh, people that are trying to grow vegetables and sell vegetables. Mm -hmm. I know that we have tried to change some of the laws to allow that to happen right. uh, in a more freely basis. Uh, and so, you know, obviously you and I, I know you've always been a, You've had a garden at your place there for many years. Uh, and, we, we grow, and, we grow, uh, we, certainly we try to grow as much as we can at home as yeah. well. We grow half, uh, we grow half our own food. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, when I was a kid growing up, we grew a, more than half of our own food. I lived on a little yeah. farm and we had our little plot of all our vegetables and we had a cave and my mom would, you know, would go in there and, and uh, can all that stuff. And then we lived on it all year long, including yeah. potatoes and, yeah. you know, really everything else. We just put it in that cellar that we had in that cave. So. That, kind of, that kind of mom cave is much more productive than a man cave. <laughs> I agree with that. Brad, I agree with that. But Brad, a lot I, of work back then. Brad, but, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, folks, we've been talking to Brad Zahn. He's a state senator from Polk County, and, uh, and we've been on a pretty uh, far-reaching conversation. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's an honor to be with you, Ed, and all your listeners. Now, thank you. When we come back from a short break, actually, we're going to continue a thread of this conversation. Kathy Burns is joining me. We're going to be talking about how the war in Ukraine might affect wheat shortages and global hunger. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. 
owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. You can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Thanks to Groovy Goods, that's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd University in Des Moines or in the new store in Pleasant Hill. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Well, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm joins me to discuss how the war in Ukraine might affect U.S. farmers and world hunger and we'll probably see that morph into a slightly larger conversation, kind of based on some of what we just talked about in the previous segment with State Senator Brad Zahn. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks. And the is the situation in Ukraine is bad enough for the people of Ukraine. Um, can't even imagine what they're going through, and the repercussions are worldwide. And we need to start thinking also about preparing for some of those possible repercussions here in the U.S. For example, um, where where our food is going to come yeah. from. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, wheat, I know there's a big anti-gluten crowd out there. So anti-gluten people, sorry, but we're going to promote wheat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are huge fans of wheat ourselves. Uh, we don't grow any, but we get it from a, a local farm here in uh, central Iowa, a family that has been growing grain and grinding it since the 1960s. Back before it was cool. It's pretty good. Yeah, ours, so ours happens to be our favorite is high a, a high gluten artisan wheat for <laughs> really gluten. nice breads. We also yeah. get a low gluten pastry. Yeah, but I mean the U.S. is well fourth uh, the fourth largest producer of wheat in the world, uh, after China, India, and Russia. And well, actually the EU, if you count all if you mm -hmm. count all the countries of the EU together, the U.S. is fifth in mm -hmm. the world production. But Ukraine is pretty high up there. Ukraine, after the U.S., is Canada, and then Pakistan, and then Ukraine. And so, I don't know, are they, are they even going to be planting grain in the Ukraine this year, given what's going on, given the horrible situation? Well, people have tried. Pe some people have planted. Whether they can harvest is another question. Mm. And um, it's, it's really going to be impacting folks. Russia and Ukraine together, as you mentioned, Ed, account for about 30% of the global wheat trade. Um, the Russian military invasion made wheat prices go up globally. Gee, no surprise there. I mean, uh, you know, and uh, I, I we talked to a, a friend who tracks these things and buys in bulk, and he was saying he's buying a lot of wheat, <laughs> a lot of a lot of wheat flour. Well, some but folks here can and are. And some can't. Yeah. There are there are folks in other countries that really depend on wheat from. Uh, their local area, which is not the U.S. in particular, but the... Um, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I would guess most of Russia and Ukraine's wheat probably go to other Asian and maybe even European countries, I'm guessing. Well, specifically Egypt, Turkey, Bangladesh, Iran. It seems they buy 60% of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine and then um, also Lebanon and several other countries are 
very dependent on well, Russian and Ukrainian. Yeah, and my, I, if I understand correctly, Yemen is as well. And, of course, Yemen is, a, I, you know, again, there should be as much news coverage of the tragedy in Yemen as well mm-hmm. and as much criticism of Saudi Arabia as there is of, uh, of, the Soviet, uh, of Russia. But, um, yeah, the bottom line is uh, it may well be that Ukraine does not have a measurable wheat crop you know, to to um, to to sell this fall, to sell or trade, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think I think there are already farmers here in the U.S. talking about. Well, let's see, maybe we should do this. And then one of the challenges there, of course, is they start growing wheat, which is coming soon. You got to make that decision really soon. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, farmers aren't equipped to plant and harvest wheat. It's a, different set it's, of machinery. There's an infrastructure you've yeah, got to have in place before you can just switch to that. I mean, like in Iowa, things. our infrastructure is all geared around corn and soybeans. Mm-hmm. Although, interestingly, one thing that's come to light from this, which is which is unknown to me, the, the, uh, the, the, the student of Iowa history, I'd forgotten, or maybe I never knew, <laughs> that Iowa was once a, once a key wheat-producing state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Prior to us becoming the corn monster that we are today, <laughs> we were really up there in terms of wheat production. I had the pleasure of reading a description that my aunt narrated of her mother, my grandmother's uh, farm, when my grandmother was a girl. And they were in western Iowa, and she and her 20 siblings, there's a whole story behind that. Oh, my behind, gosh. Whole story behind that. Um, <laughs> they had an amazing farm that was greatly subsistence farming, and also their... Um, their sales of uh, some hogs and some horses, but the description of what they grew and wheat was a big part of that. They mm-hmm. had they also grew, or foraged all their fruits and and uh, vegetables, but wheat was one of the main things that they yeah. that they grew. Yeah, and I you know I, I I'm a big believer as you are I know that that uh, a region should be as locally in, in, inter- independent as possible. Mm-hmm. It's one reason, even though Iowa is not a wheat-producing state anymore, we like to get our flour and our cornmeal and our buckwheat from mm-hmm. local sources, folks that produce it here and grind it here. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's hard to say what's going to happen in Ukraine. I mean, I, I think all of us are praying for, for peace and hoping that this resolves in some, some manner that, that uh, minimize the on, minimizes the ongoing devastation of the country. Well, for people who already struggle with a wheat supply in general, the United Nations World Food Program has been buying um, uh, enough to feed 125 million people worldwide, and um, the half of uh, 60% of what they buy comes. Well, no, wait. Half of what they buy comes from Ukraine. Okay. And yeah. Russia. So. And I, you know, and I wonder when we start thinking about. Uh, a reserve. I mean, is is there any reserve in terms of food? Do we have anything, you know, stashed away? Uh, uh, Henry Wallace, a great Iowan and a great American, had uh, envisioned an ever normal granary, where you would always have, you know, a, a big supply on hand. Uh, Joseph from biblical times, of course, uh, <laughs> advi- advised Egypt to store up uh, seven years worth of grain uh, in, in anticipation of a famine and whatnot. That turned out to be a very fortuitous decision. I don't know why our leaders today aren't similarly inclined to think, okay, maybe we should be planning for inevitable famine, drought, you know, shortages, uh, insect infestations. I mean, even though we come up with these creative ways to fight pestilence, crops develop resistance. And when they do, you know, it takes us some time, often, to figure out how to work our way around that resistance. I mean, we do we do it on a very small scale, but when you're talking about large scale production, you know, it's a much bigger challenge. How did Joseph store and his people store grain for seven years without refrigeration and sealant? That's a tricky task. Yeah, and in, even in now, Africa, yeah, I, I'm didn't, not didn't, sure. They didn't have grain elevators back then. <laughs> Not that I'm aware. I've never. No, it's a really good question. I don't think the, I don't think the Book of Exodus gets into that level of detail. But that's a great question. Maybe we ought to. Maybe do we ought to get into that. That'd be another, find some clues another that we conversation. Can use today. Yeah. Well, the thing about um, excess grain, then, though, is farmers in the U.S. who choose to invest now in planting wheat 
because the prices are high and because they want to be part of a solution to some wheat shortages, may get stuck with a storage of wheat that they can't sell if the situation in Ukraine resolves quicker than we all think and we hope that it does. But that's the dilemma that local farmers are in. And in that case, there should be a plan to store that grain for long term. And again, I I don't know how that was done in Egypt. (laughs) I don't know how it's done currently. Henry Wallace had a plan for that. And uh, that wasn't that long ago. That was less than 100 years ago. You know, there, there's a way to do this, and maybe this is, you know, the, the, the silver lining in this horrible tragedy of what's happening in Ukraine is that maybe, maybe we're going to stop, you know, you start scratching our heads and say, mm, let's figure out how to do this. Uh, you know, and here's a question. I noticed that the U.S. had produced about 44 mm-hmm. million tons of wheat uh, last, uh, you know, um, last year. I think it was 20, yeah, 2021. Um, but but um, three years ago, it was over 50 million tons. So right. wheat production in the U.S. is dropping. Well, there's a, uh, there's a reason. <laughs> you know, and what is that? Drought has affected the oh, okay, viability sure. of wheat as a crop. Okay. And once again, the way that we treat our earth, the way that we farm for, you know, the, the profit of others, the people other than the ones actually growing the food uh, has affected that. And so we're, we're damaging the earth. It's leading to some drought. And um, that is making it a less attractive decision. Also, the cost of fertilizer has gone up. The price of wheat has gone up, and it takes some fertilization. I'm not sure what is used. Well, it's oil. It's petroleum-based for sure, in the most part. But the cost of that has gone up. One thing I don't know and that we really need to look into, I'd love to have more conversation about, is, uh, is organic wheat versus... Uh, wheat grown with, or grain for gen- grain in general grown with uh, chemical inputs. That would be a good question for the folks we buy our grain from. We know it's organic. Mm-hmm. We don't know what they use to um, to fight to, off to insect it, and um, and fungal and other pests to make it stick. Yeah. Another dilemma in the uh, increase of wheat production for U.S. farmers, if they choose to do that, is that not only is the fertilizer going up. The price of that and um, and drought an, an issue, but if we need to export that wheat in order to make it again a viable crop for farmers in the U.S., the costs of transportation and freight are also going up, and it's yeah. more difficult now. Um, for instance, uh, some people might be looking to sell more wheat to India, and there are considerable expenses to that. And again, that does not help. That uses a lot of fossil uh, fuel-based uh, products to transport that. And so it's a vicious, vicious cycle. Yeah. And I come back to the reality that there are limited resources on this planet, and there are more and more of us consuming those resources and more and more people consuming more and more. Uh, you know, <laughs> when, when um, countries that have struggled for years, for, for generations, uh, for centuries, uh, with poverty, are finding that they can live a better life, it's, it's really hard to, yeah, I don't, I don't blame China and India and other countries for wanting that. But uh, at some point, you run up against the wall of limitations. Uh, there is only so much that you can, I mean, and you can certainly convince a plant to produce more than, than it might in less, uh, less ideal circumstances. But at some point, you're up against the wall. You're up against limitations. Mm-hmm. And we have to, I guess where I'm going with this, is we have to at some point wrestle with the population question. Is Earth a place that can sustain, you know, 7.6 million people, a billion people rather, let alone the 10 billion that are projected, you know? It may be big enough for the people that are here. It may not be big enough for the people who want more than they need because there's (laughs) plenty of that going on. Right. Um, We are consuming more not just food, but more products and um, energy than we really need. And that, that appetite that we have for these things and these conveniences, so-called conveniences, is really sucking us dry as far as our ability to face a yeah. future where there are so many uncertainties like war, like drought, like climate chaos, and... Um, Yes, Ed, you're right. We always bring it back to local, sustainable 
food production. Well, that's, that's where it's at. Yeah, and that, you know, there, there are again, there are, 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 it's a handful of countries that produce most of the world's wheat, but. No, that doesn't mean you can't have – and maybe there, there are probably places in the world that can't grow wheat just as, as there are places in the world that can't grow avocados, Iowa, for example. Uh, I wish we know. could. They're so, so good. <laughs> they're so good, yes. Well, I mean, and actually the truth is we, we had an interview with a fellow on this program oh, uh, a while back, an, an older gentleman from western Nebraska, uh, developed a, uh, a greenhouse called Greenhouses in the Snow. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> sounds pretty. His greenhouse – these greenhouses are committed to tropical fruit production, so you know you can besides do that. Besides just pawpaw, right? Besides just pawpaw, which, you which can is grow. That's, you know, that's the lone tropical fruit that grows in Iowa, and we like it. But the uh, the bottom line is, you know, you can you can do these things. But part of the challenge there is finding a way to build that greenhouse and fuel that greenhouse yes. sustainably. You know, you don't if you're just pumping a whole bunch of uh, carbon-based fuels. You know, fuel into the uh, into the system to grow those fruits. You know, that's that's kind of wasteful and gets expensive. But you I know, think he was using geothermal and such. Oh help, yeah, I, I you know I can't remember. You may be right. That's that's great. So I you know I mean we 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 can the silver lining in Ukraine. Let's think about how we can grow more of our own crops closer to home. Uh, and again, in some let's think about let's think about a reserve. How do we have enough on hand? to get us through inevitable crises. Kathy, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks to our our, our guest today, uh, Tim Takaro, and uh, State Senator Brad Zahn. Thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.